A de Havilland Comet 1 suddenly explodes in midair on its way to London from Rome. What caused the first jet airliner to disintegrate? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And we have... Dr. Y. He's back! The fan favorite. Almost 40 episodes from the last time you were on the podcast. Yeah, almost exactly. It was 39 episodes. exactly. Actually, if we hadn't skipped a week, it would be 40 episodes. So it's 40 weeks later. Wow. You're back. Well, thanks for having me back. Yeah. Feels good. Uh, Apparently, you were a complete fan favorite last time because that is the second most listened to episode. All right, well, let's make this one the, the highest most listened to. Okay. <laughs> I speak good. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, he he <laughs> Englishes well. English gooder than most. Oh, yes. great. Okay. Do you want to talk about yourself again? What qualifies you to be here today? Oh, why am I qualified here? Uh, a, I, I know Christy. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's step one. That's a good qualification. Step one. Step one. No, no Christy. No, but two. No, I'm a professor at the University of Colorado, Denver in mechanical engineering, and my specialty is all about material science and material behavior, so... You know, I think usually when things break or, or catastrophically go wrong, it's typically a material failure that did that, so I'd like to shed some light on some things. So there you go. The last Perfect. time he was here, we talked about fatigue. Yeah, it was very tiring. <laughs> <laughs> and the bad jokes begin. Yeah. Oh boy. I have to say, though, I didn't realize the amount of weird jokes you made during the episode till I listened to it about two months later and I was like oh no she didn't catch your Star Wars reference in I that did one until like yeah. two months I like, later wa- I rewatched the third you Star re-listened. Wars oh, okay. no I rewatched the third Star Wars and I was like oh gosh no that was actually a Star Wars reference like oh no <laughs> what do you mean? more like oh yeah <laughs> I remember last time I was here, I had I had my daughter Leia. Yeah. Yep. Uh, she's not here with us tonight. Um, though she would she'd be screaming and not screaming. She would she'd want to contribute. Um, <laughs> I see. Yes. Uh, but it's it's the dad jokes. That's that's really what it is. That's oh, yes. fair. Dad jokes. Those are kicking in now. So what are we covering today, Nick? So today we are covering BOAC or British Overseas Airways Corporation Flight Seven Eight One. This occurred on January tenth of nineteen fifty four. This was to be a trip from Singapore to London with six stopovers, count them six. That's a okay. lot. To be fair, planes back then didn't make very long trips. This is correct. On fuel stuff. Yes. And this trip, uh, I mean, six stopovers is is a lot because some of those people were on there the whole time. That's a lot of stopovers. Man, two layovers is my limit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't. I can't imagine. Well, six. this was also a more luxurious time, and they didn't have to get off. So, and it was the first jet airliner. Yeah. Well, so we're talking about the last leg of this seven-leg trip, and that is the leg from Rome to London. This was a De Havilland Comet One with the tail number. Okay, let me make sure I've got the right one here. So the reason that it's taking Nick a while to pull it up is it turns out, actually, in this stage of aviation, we actually had a different phonetic alphabet than the one you usually know. And the phonetic yeah. alphabet we're talking about is, it's like Alpha, Bravo, Bravo Charlie, Charlie, Delta, etc. etc. Cetera, et cetera. So yep. particularly the Brits had a different alphabet. And so we're going to use that for the tail number instead. Yes. So this was the RAF phonetic alphabet that was used until 1956. Be it that this is 1954, it was still used. 
We also in the United States used it till 1956. Although ours was a little different still. There was a couple of differences. But in this case, the tail number would be George Abel Love Yoke Peter. Not one of those letters is the same today. We, we ditched all those. Yeah. Now it would be <laughs> Golf Alpha Lima Yankee Papa. So that has changed significantly. But uh, this was, so this was a de Havilland Comet one. That was the very first, the de, the de Havilland Comet was the first jet airliner to the market. Now I should say it's not the first jet airliner to fly. The Canadians actually beat everybody and they had a jet, a commercial jet that flew first. However, it never entered service. Go Canada? Question mark? Something. Theirs was really late to the game after their testing. De Havilland, however, had a big history in aviation already, especially through World War II. So looking to build on that, the British government helped them with research and development and funding to develop the first commercial airliner, the Comet. And as a matter of fact, the Comet we're talking about today was the first Comet to enter service. The very first one. So the very first commercial jet airliner in service. The captain for this flight was Alan Gibson. He was 31 years old, so pretty young for a captain. He had 6,500 hours total. He was a Royal Air Force pilot during World War II, and he was very well regarded, a very well regarded pilot, and he was very experienced for his age. The first officer was William John Burry. He was 33 years old, and he had a total of 4,900 hours. Here's where things get interesting, and a little different than the way we know it. The engineer officer that is what they were called, we would know them as the flight engineer today, was Francis Charles McDonald. He was 27 years old, and he had 720 hours, the lowest hours of anybody on board. And then we talk about the fourth person, something else we don't have, and that is the radio officer. They had a separate person to work the radio? Yep, basically, yeah. The radio officer was Luke Patrick McMahon. He was 32 years old, and he had 3,600 hours. Yeah. Interesting. Of that course, didn't last very long. No. Of course, most of these people didn't have very many hours in the de Havilland Comet, which I couldn't find their hours for the de Havilland Comet, but well, none of them had very many because... fairly new. The Comet was very new. This flight was to have 29 passengers and 6 crew. 10 of the passengers on board were children. I hate that. <laughs> Any reason why? They were flying back to London for the new school year. Yep. A lot of them were returning for school. A lot of them were coming from Australia. Also on board was Chester Wilmot. He was a BBC reporter on his way home from covering the Queen's visit to Australia. He was actually a native Australian, though. Oh, interesting. Fun fact. Which uh, queen? Elizabeth. The current one. Is yeah. it still the current one? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, she got into power in what? In the 50s, I think. Was mm -hmm. it? Let mm -hmm. me let me verify before all our British listeners smack me. Yeah, sorry. What was, what was the total passenger count again? That, that's what kind of cracked 29 me up. 29. Can you imagine getting on passengers. the plane with... Like a, a jet. When you say jet with 29 yeah. people, you're like, wait, what? Yeah, I know. It's not very many these days. So she began her reign in 1952, but she was crowned in 1953, which is why she, this is her first tour of all of British territories, as it were, which she yep. is still considered the Queen of Australia. Yes. Really? Yep. Did, and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. I just, I, well, that's why I keep coming back. Yeah, learn, learn something, something new. new. Every time. We learn actually talked about time. it in an episode we lost. But um, we're re-recording. So that was coming one. soon to a podcast near you. <laughs> this one. <laughs> flight time scheduled for this flight was two and a half hours, about two and a half hours. The final leg of the flight? Yep, this final leg from wow. Rome to, to London, which is actually, for jet travel, is still pretty slow. It's really fast at the time. 
So the flight departed Rome Ciampino Airport at 9.31 in the morning. Now, all these times are UTC time. So that would be British time, basically. Greenwich Mean Time, whatever you want to call it. All of your, your mean time. Zulu time for aviation these days. So this was at 9.31 in the morning, Zulu time. And all times herein are in Zulu time. The flight was in touch with the Ciampino control tower by radio telephone and were reporting their position regularly. They were flying their filed flight plan that was filed by BOAC for their route, and they were to climb to about 39,000 feet, which was higher than most airplanes could fly at that time. This was higher than really people even knew aviation could just operate at, because we were so used to prop travel, traveling down at like the teens and the 20s. They were starting to get into the 30,000 feet, but really jet travel changed that a lot. Was this a pressurized aircraft? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Has to be. Well, yes, obviously, because you can't fly that high and not be pressurized. Well, yes, and here's the other thing. It's a jet. So traveling fast at low altitudes, there's a few things with that. One of those being traffic. When you're traveling as fast as jets do, you have a lot less time to consider traffic. Second of all, their ability to use speed, basically, because you reduce the amount of drag over the fuselage at higher altitudes... Therefore, you reduce time. So there's a lot of things that go with this. It's efficiency, basically. That's why they were able to fly higher and therefore faster. They were also communicating with another BOAC flight, a much slower Argonaut, with the tail number... Oh, am I going to do this again? Let me see if I can get this. It is George... What was A? Abel. Abel. Love. Oh, it is. It's How and Jig or Johnny. Okay, then. Thank you, Great Britain. Yeah. Uh, Golf... Alpha Lima Hotel Juliet. (laughs) (laughs) I I like that better. Who was flying the same route, but much lower and slower? The comet was actually set to arrive two hours before the Argonaut that had left before it had. Their flight time was literally almost twice as long. Because they were flying lower? And slower. They were not a jet. Lower and slower. I like that. Yep. The comet was the only jet airliner still in operation yet for the British. Oh, really? Did anyone else have a jet? I think they were the uh, first. There were a few other contenders that started to take stage around that time, and you had the Caravel in France, which was pretty similar in timing and looked relatively similar. And then you had the 707 came within a short time later. So it all of these things happened within like a five to ten year period. But the Comet was the first one, and it was very popular because of that initially. So the comet was reporting info to the Argonaut of weather and other information along the route as they were both climbing out of Rome. But be it that the comet was ahead, they were able to report conditions ahead. At 9.50 a.m., the airplane was over the Ortbello beacon and reported this to the air traffic controller. A short time later, around 10 a.m., Flight 781 was making a condition report to the other BOAC flight saying, George Howe Jim... From George Yoke Peter, so that's their tail numbers. Did you get my... But then suddenly they cut off. Their message was not completed. He cut off mid-sentence. Some nearby fishermen in port at the island of Elba, preparing for their day, when they heard an enormous boom. And then they witnessed many pieces of metal falling from the sky, some in flames, as it fell into the Tyrrhenian Sea. The fishermen immediately rushed out to sea to try to help. Upon arrival, they immediately found floating bodies, which they recovered from the water. They did not find any survivors, however. Fifteen bodies were recovered, and they were brought back to the island and dropped at a small chapel on the island. That was nice of them. 
That is just about as much as we can even cover on that one, because that's about as much as they knew. Yikes. The news reached the Accidents Investigation Branch of the Ministry of Transport and Civil Aviation at noon, 10 minutes after Harbor Authority at Porto Ferraio in the Isle of Elba was notified. The British Senior Inspector of Accidents and the Senior Investigating Officer both left for Italy that evening to join the commission that was brought together by the Italian Aviation Authorities, where it was agreed that the investigation would be performed by the British, but the Italians had Colonel Miniero and Signor Rovieri on the Court of Inquiry as representatives. How's that for pronunciations? That was good. Nice. <laughs> A-plus in my book. <laughs> early speculation about this accident was that the plane was somehow bombed, as this was in the early years of the Cold War. This was all under intense scrutiny by the well-known higher-ups of the British ministry, namely Winston Churchill. Churchill employed the Royal Navy to begin the search for the wreckage off of the seafloor, commanding Commander Forsberg in charge. Two salvage ships, the HMS Barhill and the HMS Sea Salver, were outfitted to carry 200 tons of moving gear. They, along with the HMS Wakeful, which was an anti-submarine frigate, which had television equipment, they arrived off of Elba on January 25th, two weeks after the incident. After the fishermen retrieved the 15 bodies they could find... They actually reported that they had seen a huge ball of fire and what was left of the plane rotating before hitting the ocean surface in a huge cloud of smoke. The captain of the BOAC Argonaut that had left before the comet also reported that he was on the radio with the comet at the time of getting cut off mid-sentence. The 15 bodies were transported to a chapel, as Nick had mentioned, in Porto Azuro before being examined by Professor Antonio Fornari, acting under the direction of Dr. Foco Domenici, the doctor of forensic medicine at the University of Pisa. Cause of death of each of the 15 was found to be impact with airplane parts, particularly the, the heads of all of them had fractured skulls. Ouch. Yeah. Many That's of, pretty terrible. Yeah. Many of the injuries on the bodies occurred post-mortem, such as burns from burning fuel. Mm-hmm. But one particular injury that did occur in each of them perimortem, or around the time of death, was the large lesions on their lungs, as though the lungs had burst, which was attributed to a huge clue. So their lungs exploded? Basically. Yeah. Oh, that it, sounds like a horrible way to die. might also add, this was basically the first time in history that uh, an airplane was pulled from the water. It was rare that they actually went pulled airplanes. Searched it, for it? Yeah, if they fell into the water, it was pretty much considered a lost cause, a lot like shipwrecks. But because of... The media attention that it was getting, Churchill wanted to know, especially with what with the Cold War. So he, this was the first time that a governing body was like, no, we need to pull this from the water. And I think they said it was only 120 meters deep, so it wasn't the worst thing like to have to the, do. Yeah, the hardest thing to do. Yeah. But anyway, based on the evidence, they knew that the plane had explosively failed in the air. All of BOAC's comets were grounded. Wait, on- can I ask a question? What? When they say explosive decompression, yes, does that mean fire was involved, like an ex- a, a fiery combustible mm. explosion, mm. or are we just talking like rapid decompression? Rapid decompression. Okay. Just wanted to clarify on that. Yes, that is what that means, and it is a term still used today. All of the BOAC's comets were grounded of their own accord. They said, we will ground our comets. The chairman had called a meeting the day after the accident at the London airport, which is now known as London Heathrow which consisted of the BOAC, the Accidents Branch of the Ministry of Transport and Civil Aviation, de Havilland, the de Havilland Engine Company, Limited, and more. 
This committee began to put together a list of possible main causes as follows. Control surface malfunction, primary structure failure, control failure, fatigue of the structure, explosive decompression, or engine installation. This committee became known as the ABLE Committee. The salvage operations found something using the television equipment on February 12th, a month after the accident. By March, they had accumulated the following wreckage. Anything that was initially floating. The pressure dome, parts of the rear fuselage, the engines, and the wing center section. At this point, the ABLE Committee considered the most probable cause to be fire, as they narrowed down the list based off of de Havilland's tests as they made the plane. De Havilland had done fatigue tests of 18,000 loadings without fail. On March 5th, Air Chief Marshal Sir Frederick Bowill, the chairman of the Air Safety Board, also part of that committee, reported that no cause had yet been found, though it could be similar to the Calcutta comet crash that had occurred the previous year. It was. Which was attributed to most likely severe wind gusts. So the board saw no reason to restrict continuing flight of the comet. So the board recommended that the comet return to normal operation, which it ended up resuming on March 23rd. Can I ask, I know, I know a little bit of, uh, of some of the testing they've done after all this, but when you say 18,000 loadings, was that done on uh, a sample of material, or was that done on like a whole structure? Like a whole... It was done on a whole structure. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Also, when you say they came to the declu- conclusion of fire, was that just for the engines? Was that for everything? What? Was well, that they for? hadn't finished yet, so they're like, at this point, it's probably fire, so you can start flying again. But they didn't say how the fire would have gotten they there? They didn't know yet because their investigation wasn't finished. They couldn't determine. It's probably not a great idea to have them fly again then. But they still did allow smoking on airplanes. Yes. Until 1995. And, yep. so, far, <laughs> and so far they couldn't connect any dots between... There's, this was actually the third hull loss of a de Havilland because there was another one that crashed on takeoff before either of these other two. Out of Pakistan. Yes. Correct. And so between the three, they didn't see any similarities. Wait a minute. Not I enough. I don't think that pronunciation of Pakistan was good. Pakistan. Shut up. <laughs> I even know that one. So in any case, so they couldn't connect any of the dots between all three. And to be fair, one of them was on takeoff. So really, there was they didn't have much to go on. We also were talking about a period of time where there was no data recorders. So they were only going on what they could find. What? I just feel like just saying fire is just really just not a great i know it seems a little i can strange, read huh? exactly what they said if you want me to we can we can cover that later but so march 23rd they re-entered service but we're now we're going to talk about south african airways flight 201 just flipped your world upside down yep which is also technically still boac they were leasing the plane from boac they were yep using it as a charter operator and this was on april 8th of 1954 so this was only a few weeks later after they entered service again this flight was to be from London to Johannesburg in South Africa, with two stopovers along the way. Those stopovers being Rome and Cairo. The leg we're going to be talking about is from Rome to Cairo. Okay. So they are once again leaving out of Rome. And actually, again. it was the same refueling team and the same engineer who did the pre-flight check on the last plane. Interesting. And this is also a de Havilland Comet 1, with the tail number of George... Ah, oh, God. <laughs> Abel. Abel, love, love, yoke, yoke. Yoke, yoke. Which, the yoke thing is the weird one to me. Anyways. So the captain for this flight was to be William Mostert. And I don't know the names of any of the other crew members because I couldn't find them. Oh, great. I love when that happens. If anybody can find them, I'm sure they are somewhere. I honestly, without having to, like, pay gobs of money for 
books or things like that, I couldn't find their names outright. In any case, this flight had 14 passengers and 7 crew. I found it interesting there's one more crew member than there was on the previous flight, but less passengers, half the passengers. The flight arrived in Rome at 5.35pm on April 7th, but the engineers discovered that the plane had some minor issues including a faulty gauge and 30 loose bolts on the left wing. Oh no! <laughs> That's horrifying. Yeah, but for those two things, the, the gauge and the 30 bolts, the airplane stayed on the ground for 25 hours in Rome. I mean, so it I, was, it I was guess a, that's a good thing that it was they kept it Yeah, grounded. I mean, they repaired the problems, but they were delayed for 25 hours. So those passengers that were only supposed to stop over there for fuel and whatnot stayed in Rome Probably for a day. Probably pretty cranky. <laughs> well, you know what they say, when in Rome. When in Rome, I guess. <laughs> when in Rome. I hope they had a good time. <laughs> that was dark. <laughs> yeah. Well, they departed again at 6.32 p.m. on the 8th for Cairo. The weather was to be good with some overcast conditions for their flight. So the overcast really, it was thin layer. Wasn't much to consider. It was pretty normal. The flight reported passing over the Ostia beacon at 6.37 p.m. as they were climbing through 7,000 feet. The flight then reported being at Ponza at 6.49 p.m. as it was climbing through 11,600 feet. The flight was to climb to 35,000 feet for its cruising altitude, rather than 39. At 6.57 p.m., the flight reported passing next to Naples. So they were over the water, but they were a beam or parallel to Naples. The flight then made a radio call at 7.07 p.m. on a high-frequency, long-range radio to Cairo to report that they were going to arrive at Cairo at 9.02 p.m., their scheduled time. They were still climbing at that point, but this was the last time that that flight would be heard from. Sometime later, the plane reached 35,000 feet, and a short time after that, the aircraft disintegrated in midair during the darkness of night and fell into the Tyrrhenian Sea. Both Rome and Cairo air traffic controllers attempted to make contact with the flight, but could not. Both came to the conclusion that the flight may, not ha may have been lost and may not make it. A search was initiated. Nobody survived this accident, and the aircraft was never recovered, by the way. So that aircraft is still at the bottom of the Tyrrhenian Sea. Five bodies were recovered from the sea on the next day, and a sixth body was found washed ashore. That is all I have on that one. Okay. That is all they have. I mean, that is, there was not much about this one either, because again, there's no recorders. So yeah, that is so as they... much as they knew. Break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. After this second accident, the Minister of Supply enlisted the Royal Aircraft Enlistment under the direction of Sir Arnold Hall to perform the scientific investigation of both accidents. So far, the number of organizations that we have named is insane. Yes. They have an organization that does everything. Yes. Good. The RAE, as it is referred to henceforth, reviewed the ABLE Commission's conclusions and began analysis of the wreckage from the first accident, of which parts were still being found. The wing center section was recovered on April 5th, and the front cabin arrived on April 15th to the hangar in Farnborough. Based on what was had from the first accident, mind you, th because there was no wreckage to receive 
or to retrieve from the second accident because the water was much deeper, as in like a thousand meters, as opposed to 120 is what Someone I said. Someone called yeah. James Cameron, okay? Yeah. We'll get down there. <laughs> I'm sure they could go down and get it now, but... Well, they did retrieve Air France 447. Yes, they which did. Which was in smack dab in the middle of the Atlantic, so... Okay. But still, this one is... So the second one just wasn't worth their time in the end. They were like, you know, whatever's going on is clearly an issue. And with the circumstances being so unbelievably similar, whatever happened to the first one is very, very likely what happened to the second. Happened to the second one, yeah. Yep. But at this point, I would hope they'd just keep them on the ground and have them stay there until they figure it out. They ended up having enough clues anyways from the second one. Mm Mm-hmm. So, based on the wreckage and those clues, Sir Hall's initial suspicions centered around fatigue, despite de Havilland's protestations. He and his crew had actually taken all of the wreckage found and put it on a skeleton of the comet in the first airplane reconstruction performed, which we have pictures of on their website. And it's still a pretty rare thing, actually. They don't reconstruct airplanes almost ever. There's only one time I know they they fully did it, and it was for the TWA that exploded over New York. So, this is how much they had. Which ended up, I think, being about two-thirds. I say it at some point. I mean, it looks like a good portion of the plane. There was debris found from the front area of the plane in the back of the plane, leading to the suspicion of explosive decompression starting in the front of the plane, coupled with the fact that the autopsies of the bodies from this accident showed identical injuries to the first accident, which were indicative of explosive decompression. So Sir Hall performed a scaled test at one-tenth the size and made a makeshift fuselage with 28 miniature seats and six dummies. An equivalent pressure was added, and then the team deliberately ruptured the cabin. I will describe the results as Miranda watches said results. Okay. So explain to me what exactly is going on. So the dummies flew upward and smashed their heads on the overhead compartment slash ceiling. And the air pressure outward was the equivalent of a 500-pound bomb, causing the dummy's makeshift lungs to expand rapidly and burst, as had the victims of both accidents. So they have explained the injuries that were found. Yeah, I don't like the term explosive decompression. I mean, it really should be instantaneous decompression, but wow. Yes. Wow. But I mean, it looks like an explosion when you look at it on the surface, because literally everything erupts outward. Yep. So they knew there was potential for it to happen. At this point, Sir Hall decided to employ a form of testing used normally to test boilers, and that was to fill the vessel, or in this case cabin, with water and change the pressure repeatedly as the results are able to be examined after failure and aren't as catastrophic as what we just watched. Water is incompressible, which is why it is less dangerous to perform such a test. But this would also induce a different kind of loading due to the weight of water, which Sir Hall addressed by building a ginormous water tank for the entire cabin to be suspended in and have that filled with water as well as the cabin. And we're talking about full scale. So there are pictures on our website, though I'm showing pictures to everyone here now. This tank is 34 meters by 7 meters by 5 meters. I mean, if you put it in context, I mean, this is like their hottest new technology this is like the tesla of the time oh yeah right? this yeah. is uh this is like wow a jet can go forty thousand feet it can cut down your flight by half the time yeah. and you know it'd be like finding out that tesla's autopilot just you know runs you into a brick wall every time yeah <laughs> you'd be exactly like, what uh you would hope elon musk uh, would take that very seriously and be like we need to do whatever it takes to figure out why and, and that's so, exactly what they did so exactly. sir hall's team rolled in another boac comet brand new and just a, an air just a 
gigant just expended the entire airplane yep. in a yep. water tank. And they it was yep. donated. It was great. The tail number, which I wrote down like an intelligent human being, Good. Is, was George Abel Love Yoke Uncle. And they put it in the tank with the wings hanging out. So if you look at pictures, it's... Well, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Be a very, very, very big tank if they made it. Kind of looks like a shipping container. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. It was a big glorified metal shipping container. Filled with water. They worked around the clock to build that container, though. Yes. It took them six weeks to build. To, of nonstop 24-hour building. Jeez. So water was injected into the cabin to an equivalent pressure, while the wings were flexed by outside mechanisms to simulate turbulence and the like. And after five minutes, the pressure was relieved, representing a flight cycle at around 40,000 feet. This guy was like the Christopher Nolan of testing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, no special effects, no shortcuts. He went all out. Yeah, we're building the whole thing. Yeah. You can can see in the background the other tank, which that's where the water was stored when it wasn't in the airplane. This test was run for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and by de Havilland's estimates, should have run for about five months based on the projected lifespan of the comet. But how long did it run? Let's talk about what's going on adjacent to this. (laughs) While this was going on, the team finished reassembling the wreckage, coming to about two-thirds of the plane, and found out that the plane fractured as such from explosive decompression. The fracture started towards the front of the fuselage, between the cabin and the cockpit somewhere. The tail and rear fuselage separated, then the rear wing, then the outer wing, then the cockpit, and the remaining fuel propelled the center fuselage forward and began its rotation that the fishermen spoke of. Okay, now back to the water test. At the end of June, about a month into their testing, 3,060 flight cycles in, a massive tear formed from the corner of one of the cabin windows, about six feet long, along the windows and doors. (gasps) Oh no, that's huge! Uh, yeah. So that's what happened in water. Imagine what happened in the air. Yeah, it would be a lot uh, worse in the air because, again, as Christy said, Water is incompressible. Right. So usually when a, a crack would form or you would lose pressure, you very, very quickly would stabilize out uh, all the pressure. Whereas air, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I'm saying air gun, uh, like a BB gun that you can kind of pump up and, and store a lot of compressed air in there. And that's, yep. that's what makes it so much more violent when, uh, when things that are pressurized with compressible fluids, like air, uh, when they explode, they explode badly. Yep. That is... A good explanation for what just happened. Yep. And actually, the algae in the water showed that the crack had been there for several pressurizations before the failure, which is another benefit of using water. You have time tellers, a timetable. Basically, they could tell that the crack was visible. True. Dr. Walker on the team says that although the life of this pressurized experiment was 3,060 flights, in practice, it would be more like 2,500. The first accident plane, Yoke Peter, had made... 1,290 pressurized flights, and yoke yoke, the second plane had made 900. Based on this experiment, the RAE established that the original piece that had the initial fatigue crack was probably blown much further away than the rest of the wreckage, renewing a search in the ocean for more parts. An Italian fishing boat, actually, found a piece of cabin skin from the center of the top of the cabin over the front spar of the wing. It contains the automatic direction-finding equipment windows, so they had to have windows built into the fuselage so that this could transmit. Yeah, they're actually on top of the airplane. So those two, <laughs> those two squares are windows from that are literally on the top of the airplane. That's kind of awesome. Also, not great since yeah, that's 
yeah. caused it to go boom. Yep. Well, it was at these windows that the fatigue cracking began, particularly at a countersunk hole for a rivet, to which I now direct the remainder of the analysis to our guest regarding the two sources of stress concentration leading to the initial crack that propagated. One, use of rivets for attaching to the windows. So I like to ask this question on my test with a very terribly drawn airplane. And you alluded to the problem earlier when you said corners of the windows and uh, square windows. And most people, you know, hear that and think, oh, yeah, okay, that, that sounds perfectly normal. But when was the last time you were on an airplane and saw square windows? Right. You don't. You don't. You don't. And, and there's a good reason you don't have square windows on airplanes. Yeah. Anymore. It's the comet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> now I draw a terrible picture uh, on my test and I really exaggerate, you know, squ fully square windows. And if you're looking at the picture here, if you look up a photograph of the wreckage, you know, you can see they rounded them off a little bit, but they're still not oval shaped as you would imagine or, or you would see on an airplane today. They're definitely right. very square. Did right. you just recently start doing this? Because I have zero recollection of this. You know, I, I've been in the game a long time, okay? i got to switch up my tests, so, uh, you know, maybe you skipped out on that one. I don't know. And so in this, you know, where you, you, know, you want to see if people are paying attention and, you know, listening to this. Did, did you hear? Yeah, square windows, corners, right? And, you know, looking at this, uh, there's a reason uh, that we don't have square windows in airplanes anymore. And you could describe that as a stress concentration, all right? Now, stress concentration just means that there's a certain area or geometry or feature in, in your part that amplifies the stresses. So um, mm -hmm. I like to maybe try to say the easiest way to you know, demonstrate this is you know, it just takes something simple like a piece of paper. If you cut nicely you know, and, and carefully a, yep. a hole or a nice round circle in that piece of paper, mm -hmm. and then you try to pull it apart, the paper should, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know how violently you're doing this, but the yeah. paper you know, should maintain its integrity uh, pretty well. I'll say mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you were to cut a square into that piece of paper or a diamond or anything with a sharp edge or corner, yep. uh, you'll notice that it'll just propagate a crack extremely quickly. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, it's just a, an easy thing anyone can do at home. Yeah, just try cutting a, you know, like a, a round feature into a piece of paper versus a, a sharp edge or corner. That and you'll sense. notice that piece of paper will tear very quickly. Uh, but the stress concentrations, uh, you know, sometimes you could say uh, as you pressurize this vessel, you think of an airplane, it's a tube. It's a yeah. big, big tube yep. up in the air being pressurized. And so uh, what's going to happen is uh, normally if, it w if there were no windows, it actually would be pretty nice. You know, people needing windows. Now, in this case, you needed the windows for uh, transmission of radio signals. Right. Um, so, it's not, so we can't blame it on people just wanting to look out and see everything. But you know, I'm sure people want to look out anyway. But if you wouldn't have windows, you wouldn't have any stress concentration factors. And so uh, the chances of this happening would be much, much, much lower. That is true. Uh, but in this case, uh, yeah, we, we, had, we had windows, and, and they designed them square. Why did they design them square? Because uh, most windows and houses and things are square. Yeah, ex exactly. Now, they were smart enough to know to, uh, to round them off somewhat. And in engineering, just a good, I'd say, a rule of thumb is sharp edges and corners are bad. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, it doesn't matter if you if you're designing it for an airplane. Doesn't matter if you're trying to you know baby proof your kitchen. Sharp edges and corners. Yeah. This is fair. Are you speaking from experience? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Every time my daughter gets near anything that resembles an edge or corner, my heart rate goes up at least fifty percent. <laughs> now the other problem that they had is the rivets that were used to assemble and kind of join uh, the, the fuselage together uh, were what do they call 
push rivets. Okay? Yes. Now, I, I'm not a rivet master or expert, but I can I, I can probably break this down pretty easily to understand. So there, you have a couple options when trying to rivet two pieces together. Mm-hmm. One, you could drill a hole. And think of like drilling a pilot hole into a piece of wood. If you're going to uh, insert maybe a, a screw or probably not a nail, but a, a screw into a piece of wood, you mm-hmm. probably start with a pilot hole and yeah. then you could pass a bolt or maybe a screw into it. Or uh, push rivets, very much similar to instead of drilling a pilot hole, just hammering a nail straight in. It's like yep. pushing it through. Now, depends on what kind of wood you're using. But uh, sometimes, if you'll notice, if you've ever nailed, you know, driven a nail into a board, it could split around mm-hmm. the nail. Mm-hmm. Like you'll definitely see a little crack forming. Mm-hmm. And that can happen the same way with these push rivets. And so it's, I would like to say, an imprecise means of attaching a rivet so yeah. a better more precise means would be drill a hole and then use maybe uh I, i'm gonna forget the actual uh, standard name for rivet but where you, you know, kind of like pull the one end and and they join together in this case instead of yeah. pushing just kind of with you can say, think of blunt force or brute forcing a rivet through right when you do that it's just like inserting a nail into a piece of wood uh you might have some micro tears or micro fractures right uh, that occur and so you have these two kind of compounding or maybe competing uh, factors that are both bad. And from the last time I was on, we talked about how the tail section of a plane scraped the ground. And that scratch is a very good spot for a crack to, to grow from, propagate from. Well, in this case, you have the same thing. You have these areas now that have high stress concentrations, yep. higher than they, they normally would be if there were no windows intact. And then you also have these rivets that were pushed through instead of kind of drilled through. And then you have these tiny micro tears as well. So it, it, this is just an engineer's, you know, worst dream here. High yeah, stresses, really tiny, you know, you think of uh, rough features like tiny cracks or, or tears. And eventually what's going to happen is a crack's going to grow and then fatigue failure will kick in. And if you missed my last episode or, you know, haven't uh, talked about fatigue too much, generally fatigue is really bad because it happens so instantaneously and it doesn't give you much warning. It's not like the, the fuselage or this area, you know, got, you know, uh, I'd say bigger or, or, or morphed. It's not like it, it bent and someone could visually look at it and say, oh yeah, your, uh, your fuselage looking a little uh, deformed and warped over there. Uh, yeah. Nick, you know, not, not so good. No, that's not, really <laughs> not how, how it works. works. Yeah. It, it's really like a tiny crack is forming and that tiny crack isn't flexing very much. It's not showing a lot of deformation. It's, you know, usually, and in this case, it was on the very top of an airplane. Not saying yeah. that they don't, they don't inspect up there, but yeah. But at the same time, the, there's just not a lot of warning signs. Well, in this early in the airplane's life, they didn't expect it at all. And just the same, I mean, you know, these airplanes, not only were they brand new, but engineers had put a lot of time into it. They thought they'd thought of everything in a way, but they couldn't account necessarily for the rivets. And then the square windows were still an issue, even when they were rounded out. Absolutely. So the, it, these days in aviation, yeah, the the push rivets are out the window. We don't use those anymore. <laughs> that was a good pun there. These days we use, you know, pulled rivets or rivet pullers. So they literally, you stick it, you, you drill the hole first, and then you stick the rivet through, and then it pulls the bottom end up, which then squishes the rivet flat on either side of the plate. And there's quite a few actually different forms of these rivets, but that's one of the, the most commonly used ones in aviation. We also talk more about rivets in another episode where we discussed fatigue, which was uh, episode 27. Was that Aloha? That was Aloha. And actually, funny enough, a picture of that particular incident was in Chris's textbook. That oh, he yeah. Made the get. Dowling textbook. Yeah. Yeah. I actually nice. went and found that textbook and pulled open the page. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. It's a great read, Quite riveting. <laughs> God 
You left that one open. Oh, man. So I also want to maybe uh, go back because I, I know I, I don't want to say picked on you, but I asked about, you know, how did they do the 18,000 loadings? They mm-hmm. said, hey, that this should last 18,000, right. and these crashed after, what did we say, 2,900 loadings? Oh, less than that. These ones were... 900, was maybe, was it? One was 900, and the other one was like 1,800 or it was 1,200. 1,290. 1,290, that's right. Yeah, so what they did do, you know, large-scale testing on this, and so, you know... Why didn't they predict this? What, why were they so off on, on measuring that? And a, a couple of things that I, I'd have to probably think about, I'd have to look into this a little bit more, is that also there's probably a, a large temperature effect. Right? Yes. You're up at 40,000 feet, and uh, you know that's, uh, that's cold. It's very yes, cold. very cold. And so I'd, I'd be wondering if they did uh, all those 18,000 tests at you know that you know <laughs> freezing temperatures or if they did them in ambient conditions. So Well, it's interesting you bring that up because... One of the things I read in this report, and I didn't even write it down, but I figured I'd bring it up at some point. There was a second suggestion for why these airplanes blew apart from another one of the investigators, and it was not agreed upon by anybody else. But his theory was that for... So they had developed an aluminum alloy specifically for this airplane because it was the first jet airliner, and it needed to fly higher and faster, but it needed to carry heavy engines. They wanted to carry quite a few people... So they wanted the airplane to be big, but they didn't want it to be heavy. So they developed a very thin aluminum alloy that was very light, but was supposed to be very strong. And it was intended to be this perfect be-all, end-all for aviation, but it turns out that it also has cracks in it. It breaks apart. Now, can I, can I add that you know, if they made an aluminum alloy mm-hmm. that was supposed to be you know, stronger right. than traditional alloys... Right. Uh, there's always going to be a trade-off in engineering. Exactly. And, so, um, and, and, and what is that trade-off, Chris? I'm going to test test you right now. Strength and ductility. Strength and ductility. That's right. If you see, I learned. A you, thing. you did learn. You learned yeah. good. All right. She learned <laughs> you good. Learned good. You learned good. <laughs> yeah. And so if they made it and introduced a new alloy, uh, a couple again compounding effects here is that as you uh, increase the strength of a material. You'll always reduce the ductility, uh, yeah. and it would be wonderful if we could, uh, you know, somehow increase both at the same time. That's where, why people try to use composites, because composites kind of can help you unlock that. But if you're using just a pure aluminum alloy, uh, if they, you know, I- increase the composition of some of the alloying elements, increase the strength, they've certainly reduced the ductility. And then also, it, you know, you know, negative. We're thinking about negative twenty or forty or. 60C up there in the skies, um, that, that, that'll also enter, you know, a, a more of a, a brittle transition in a lot of metals. And, and that is very common for steels as well. Right. So, so you have all these just kind of maybe kind of compounding, competing variables and factors. It's, it's cold. It's a high strength uh, material, which means it's going to be a little bit more uh, brittle. It's also only half a millimeter thick. Wow. Yeah, they made it extremely thin. When they say an aluminum skin... It was literally a skin. They're not joking. So here's the interesting (laughs) thing about that. So the suggestion that was brought up was that there were stringers along the fuselage. Because they were using the alloy, they had to put a lot more stringers in this fuselage to keep it all in in a shape, basically. So, you know, normally airplanes would be framed, but because they didn't, most of them weren't pressurized or the pressurization that they had wasn't a whole lot, they didn't have to do as much basically framing. The airplane was big, it was heavy. But they were using thicker skins, so the airplane would hold its shape generally very well. Well, this airplane being very thin-skinned, they used a lot of stringers across the fuselage to keep its shape. And in these stringers, they were using a type of glue, uh, Redux, it was known. Uh, And de Havilland was basically the pioneer in using Redux. And this glue that was holding 
the the stringers to the fuselage was also used in wood compression for say wood propellers so to keep the layers of the wood together in a propeller they were doing the same thing with this it was supposed to be this really high strength glue and the theory was was actually about temperature they were saying okay sometimes these airplanes would land say in cairo and they would be sitting in the sunlight and the airplane gets hot to say around 80 degrees c and then they would go up to altitude where they're at negative 55 degrees c and that's a massive temperature difference. Well, they actually did tests on this, and they determined that the actual difference varying in average temperature was only 10 degrees C, which I thought was really interesting. Hmm. And a lot of that has to do with drag over the fuselage. Because of the air and the friction, it actually meant that the fuselage didn't change temperature very much between ground and air. Interesting. Wow. So they determined that temperature actually wasn't a factor, and that wasn't, they couldn't determine that that was going to be a big problem, was the glue. Because they did tests where they ran it through a, a very large varying temperature difference, and they couldn't get the glue to fail. They also couldn't get it to fail at the levels that the airplane was actually experiencing either. So they, de they determined that the glue was not a factor. However, the investigator that said this held his ground. He still believes that that is what happened. But I think... Wait, is he still alive? No. Oh. I don't think he is. <laughs> but the... And it was in the report. It was in the he report. he was like, hey, I disagree with the rest of you. Yeah, he stood his ground even when everybody agreed that it was the, the fatigue that actually caused this problem. And in, you know, he held his ground and they couldn't prove it. And I think the comet eventually proved itself too. Because even after we, they proved that it was fatigue, then they managed to fix the problem. The airplane re-entered service four years later, by the way. And when they did, then they were actually a very reliable airplane. They didn't have the same problems ever again. So after they, you know, replaced the square windows and, yeah, and so, the rivets. rivets. So actually, from this point forward, they started creating the Comet 2, 3, and 4, which were eventually bigger versions of the Comet. But also the 2 was essentially where they replaced all of your square windows with round windows. So they didn't have that problem. But within those four years, the Comet was overtaken in popularity by a well-known brand. Boing. Boing. <laughs> 707. Boing. Yes, the oh, 707. Boing. Took... Yes, Boeing. <laughs> oh, not Boing? Oh. <laughs> I've been saying it wrong this whole time. <laughs> but the 707 did take that particular niche that the Comet had, and de Havilland didn't really recover to the extent that Boeing, They you know, did not still as a thing yeah I even mean, so they even had some u.s customers that they were supposed to be selling to and those u.s customers actually even ended up buying the french caravel before they bought the comet <laughs> yeah it really it really set it back i mean if you kind of think of the, the time period you know it's like the first jet that was commercialized before that a lot of the testing uh <laughs> i hate to say uh when you say test pilots uh, a lot of test pilots mm -hmm. died trying to get, you know, jets uh, proven to yes. be reliable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then in the British Airways uh, seemed to have it figured out, right? They, yeah. They, they seemed to they're going to be the leaders. So they were finally going to bring one to service, the first one. They were going to stick it to those Americans and say, British engineering is where it's at. And uh, unfortunately, th these crashes really, I hate to say, uh, call, uh, I don't want to say cause them to crash and burn, but um, they, yeah, it did. It did. De Havilland ended up existing for a very long time. As a matter of fact, they're still around. However, this was a hard hit to De Havilland. They never really regained their their size, let's say, in the manufacturing industry. So they were never... They were supposed to be the leaders in jet aviation. And to be honest, they were, because without them, we really wouldn't know all these problems. 
or have fixed them and been able to prevent them in the future. So you can still thank them for actually pioneering the way things are, but I guess, you know, if you're going to be the first at something, you're probably also going to be the first to find out why it's bad. Yeah, so sometimes <laughs> it's not it's not the good to be good to be the first one. It's good to be maybe second. <laughs> yeah. So they have the title of being first, but they also have the first to find out the wrongs. And I mean, good for them for doing everything in their power though to fix it. And Churchill, though, when they started into this on after the second crash, the South African, which was actually the third one, we touched briefly on the one from India, the other BOAC, 783, Flight 783. That one, they assumed was weather because it was flying through a thunderstorm. They believe the fuselage got overstressed, and they can't prove at this point that that was what happened, but they do believe that it actually was the same cause as these other two in the end. That overstress going through... Uh, turbulence may have caused that fuselage to, you know, the fu- the fatigue to actually propagate and the cracks to, to propagate and eventually just blew in the thunderstorm. But regardless, them having been the first, you know, they got to find these things out. And Churchill said, well, you know, after the second accident, the South African, he said, well, we're going to we're going to figure this out because this is our pride and joy. And he said, there is no amount of manpower or money that you need to worry about. Do whatever you need to do to figure it out. So he was actually a big part of it, too. They It wasn't just de Havilland themselves. The British government stepped in and said, look, we will give you everything you need to figure out what's wrong with this picture. Because they wanted to prove that they could make a reliable product. And today, when we think of aluminum going into aerospace applications, we now have everything figured out, right? You'd think. We don't. No. We have this whole problem again now with the new... Uh, composites. You say composites with one. You know, there's obviously... Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not going to say obviously. Hopefully there won't be any surprises. Yes. Uh, and we learned a lot from this. Yes. But two, with aluminum, now I'd say the craze, the, the rage that's going on is 3D printing aluminum. Mm-hmm. And now there's a lot of unknown questions of what's going on in 3D printed materials. Right. Well, and especially when you start talking about 3D printing aluminum, then you don't have grain basically, in, in the aluminum. So you don't have strands. It's actually just melded in all these different directions. So we don't know what's going to happen yet. So I can do a, a shameless plug, you know, at the University of Colorado at Denver. Uh, we, we have uh, an M290 machine that was uh, generously placed there on campus by a small company called Lockheed Martin. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So small. You may have heard of them. A small local, they have a local branch here in, in Colorado. Yeah, they're um, from here. But yeah, no, it's a, they call it selective laser melting. And so you have these mm-hmm. you have tiny powder particles of aluminum mm-hmm. and a laser scans across them and melts them together. Yep. And, you know, it's interesting because now you can, you can 3D print parts that, you know, you could never machine ever. And especially for, you know, lightweighting structures and really just not, not flying bulky, heavy things, either in airplanes or even, you know, throwing satellites into space. Mm-hmm. But now the question is, you know, are they going to last? Are the, will right. the fatigue be different? So it's, it's kind of funny. I used to, I would have said probably, I don't know, five, five years ago, oh, we figured out, you know, fatigue and metals. It's, it's boring. They had all these problems in the fifties. We don't need to worry about this anymore. But and now, now it's, yeah, but now it's like, oh, wow. Like uh, we're so, doing it all over again. It's exactly, exactly what I'm researching now is what happens <laughs> when we 3d print aluminum. Oh, well, let's take a look at that. Well, build an airplane, put it in a pressure tank yep. and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the future of aviation is really interesting because now, yeah, we're starting into the composites. I know there was a company that talked about 3D printing aluminum for an airplane recently. And there's a lot of other materials that go into it, fiberglasses and such, that are mostly kept in general aviation, but they're starting to work their ways into 
primary, like the primary material in commercial aviation as well. Some of the seat brackets, the attachments of, of mm-hmm. the seat, are, are of three D printed materials. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I could say anything on the on the outside structurally. I'm not saying that yeah. your seat's not structural, but you know, on the outside, kind of structural. On the airframe. Yeah, on the frame is three D printed. I'm not sure on that, but I know for um, anything in, I'd say, space. Uh, yeah. That's kind of really where where they want to go in 3D printing parts. I know some has been out of plastic, um, and some has been out of uh, you know aluminum or, or as I say metals. Like yeah. That. But it's kind of exciting though because it's new materials, uh, new designs, which is great. I, I, you always want to see something new. Yes. I like the joke is you know uh, you know look at a phone in the 60s or 50s since we're talking about the 50s. Mm-hmm. I look at a phone now, completely different. Right. Look at a rocket or a missile then and. And look at one now, and you're like, well, they kind of look like the same thing a little bit, you know? They're yeah, you know, but they're, they're not at all the same in the end because it's all new stuff. Yeah, but but I feel like where it's gonna go here in the next is even more different. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna yeah. make that jump where you look at you know an old phone and think that that is just Stone Ages. Yes. So. Well, and you can talk about too in aviation the so the one thing about the Comet is they went full scale right away. You know, okay, so they built tiny scale things for wind testing and all that. But as far as actual airplane, they built a full scale airplane to do all of their testing in immediately. Whereas companies these days tend to build a smaller proof of concept aircraft that, you know, is actually a full on airplane. Uh, you know, they'll have a test pilot and everything, and they'll fly that instead of a full scale airplane first to try to prove their designs and prove all the different patents that they're trying to get for the airplane as well. When you start talking about new materials and new ways of designing products. So IE here in Denver, we have boom aviation and they are trying to, they're trying to do another supersonic airplane. Yeah, they're, guys. To, they're just one of like five different companies trying to build another supersonic airplane right now. Just and, for reference, Miranda loves the Concorde. Yeah. yeah. I have a weird obsession with the Concorde. And they're, they're actually building a proof-of-concept airplane that's supposed to have flown this year, but I think it's going to be next year. Their, their proof-of-concept airplane is a single-seater, essentially like fighter jet-looking airplane, but it's still a Delta-winged, smaller version of their, their full-size product, which is still only supposed to be a 32-seat airliner essentially but regardless it is a smaller version so they're flying a a smaller mock-up of their airplane first for all their testing and proof of concept whereas de Havilland went straight in full-size comet the cause the cause was actually so this report was really strange because it was written in first person by the person who wrote the report yeah that was weird it is really weird and so most of this was about how he was glad that his report was accepted by the majority in the court and this and that. It was also, for the record, printed by Her Majesty's Stationery Office. Yes. There was an Office of Stationery? I guess. That's what it says Apparently. on the cover. It's also one of the first places that like was typewriting in Times New Roman. So the entire report is in Times New Roman. Yeah. It was interesting. So so they had this big, long paragraph for the cause, but the actual cause that he wrote was the last half of the last sentence in that. (laughs) And I have rewritten it slightly to be a sentence. I said, the cause is... The main conclusion of the report is that the cause of the accident to yoke Peter was the structural failure of the pressure cabin brought about by fatigue. That was the whole probable cause. That just sounds, I, I hate to say, like, lazy report writing. Yes. But you're the one who taught me how to write reports. 
Yeah, I would so... write a better report than that. <laughs> well, the, the cause of failure was it uh, crashed and uh, di- didn't survive. I mean, that's kind of basically what that's. Yes. <laughs> so in there's another paragraph for the second accident in there, the South African Airways accident, and in that one he writes. I am writing a separate report for this accident. However, I figured it was important to bring up that this accident happened in similar conditions. That was basically the whole (laughs) thing about that accident. And he wrote it in first person exactly that way. And I was like, wow, this is weird. This is just weird. There's a lot of weird here. There's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of things missing. Well, they spent their budget on the testing, not the report writing. Yeah, I guess that's fair. (laughs) And to be fair, they did find the main issue. So with that, I found it interesting that the recommendations don't really necessarily hit directly at that, though. However, I think that's a lot of that has to do with the fact that de Havilland, BOAC, and the engineers and such all were already working on the fix for this by the time this report was released. But his recommendations were more study of pressure cabins and the wear on the the structures of aircraft, so how everything wears over time, Recommended the engineering officer of Yoke Peter was not, which this was weird because it wasn't a recommendation, really. But he pointed out that the engineering office officer uh, of the flight, the main flight we talked about, Yoke Peter, was not licensed at the time of the accident. Okay, (laughs) Okay, to be clear, this was not the engineering officer's fault, per se. Like, why was he allowed in the airplane? Okay, so, uh, well, here's the thing. He is a licensed engineering officer however it had expired oh and it's the airline's duty to take care of that okay and they weren't keeping up with renewals so his wasn't renewed they were still scheduling him to fly however so they actually blamed boac for that that is boac's fault yep here in the united states when you do anything in aviation actually it doesn't expire it is a certificate not a license it has no expiration date so i have a student certificate and that does not expire I can continue. So when you're 80, you can be like, I got my student certificate. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I hope to God by that point you have your private pilot's certificate. Yeah, right. But the student certificate would still be valid. It would still be valid. But it gets superseded. So the more the more uh, type ratings you get, basically IFR, you know, commercial, all that, it gets superseded. Last one they actually really had because there was it's kind of complicated, but there was a lot to some of these recommendations. Like, can I get, I mean, this guy's report is, yeah, it, 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 it fatigued. It's like, well, yeah, if it didn't, if it didn't crash the first time and it was mm-hmm. like the 900th time. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's just someone just being lazy there. And the recommendation was more study. Yeah. Basically. Wow. He, he didn't do a whole lot on. I don't know why I'm picking on this one guy. No, I get it. But, but the thing is, is also they didn't have a specific group of people that were, you know, their investigative body for aviation all the time. Whereas we have the NTSB now. We didn't even have the NTSB then. So it's the same thing. They didn't have an investigative body for air disasters or air crashes. This was really the first time they were like, "Mm, maybe we should have one. So they started to form one after this, but this report was written by an independent body created specifically for this incident. Yep. It was a different time it was, then. It was called a court of inquiry. Yes, a court of inquiry. The exactly. number one song on the radio in 1954, Mr. Sandman by the Cordettes. Wow. You looked that up. I did, but I, <laughs> but, but you all know the song. Yes. 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 So the last one, they recommended investigating the specific aluminum alloy properties and the effects of pressure changes on the fatigue properties of this material and to ensure that the stress 
is even across all parts of the pressure cabin. So basically saying that, you know, the airplane what didn't have an even distribution of stress due to square windows. So they just wanted to have a lot more oversight on the way these airplanes were built, the materials and the engineering on it. That's, I mean, given, yeah. Yeah, that's basically it. They pointed out another thing, and I didn't really know how to write this very well, but essentially the inspectors at these manufacturers, say at de Havilland, when they were inspecting the airplanes and their the, the final products, the inspectors were part of the manufacturer, so they didn't have an independent bias. That's a terrible idea. That's horrible. Yeah, so basically the recommendation was to have an outside source body of, investigate of inspectors yeah. to inspect. So basically saying the government should have a hand in that, i.e. we have the FAA inspects all airplanes manufactured by mm-hmm. independent manufacturers. Well, and we've talked before about how inspectors shouldn't be inspecting their own work. Yes. In any kind of fashion. Right. Refer to recent episode Air Midwest. If there's one more thing I'd like to add, it would be that the it's funny, not funny, coincidental that the number of cycles it took to fail mm-hmm. was right at around the threshold of where you you would say low cycle to high cycle fatigue. Now, it's never a exact number. Usually textbooks or people will say it's between 1,000 and 10,000 cycles. It's where you would say it's transitioning from low cycle to high cycle. Yeah. It just means, you know, fatigue means it didn't break on the very first cycle. Now, right. What if it broke after five? That would right. definitely be low cycle. Yeah. But the mechanism of which that fatigue occurs is slightly different. So when you're in the, let's say, five to 100 cycle range, mm-hmm. you would actually have uh, some significant signs of plastic deformation happening. And when I say that, just meaning you would see the metal probably would have uh, warped or looked right. looked deformed. I'll say it like that. Way. Right. It would not return to its original shape. Exactly. And so, um, but in this case, you know, the design was in just, just on the line because had the stresses been higher, it, you know, it would have very, very, I'll say likely would have uh, failed at a much lower number of cycles. Yeah. But the mechanism then would have been different. But you would have actually seen signs of, of deformation not recovering. And it probably, probably would have been a lot easier to spot. Yeah. Uh, but when you're at that 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 range, then you're in high cycle fatigue. Then it's all governed by tiny microscopic cracks coming from the rivets. And that's when I say there's very little signs of, of something kind of boiling under the surface or growing right. from the surface uh, to break. And then it just happens catastrophically. Well, yeah. And when they did this, they had to actually use a microscope to even see the cracks on some of the other airplanes and materials. And even then, it was determined that, you know, they could only see so much with the microscopes they had. Some of the cracks that were likely there needed electron microscopes, which we have now, and they didn't have then. Yeah. And actually, we watched a Seconds to Disaster episode about these incidents, and a modern metallurgist by the name of Paul Withy, he actually took an electron microscope to the parts of the initial crash, which are still stored. The London Science Museum. He actually took a cast using silicon putty and put it under an electron microscope and was able to see evidence of fatigue cracking. Striations. Yes. Little, they look like little tree rings. If you cut a tree and you count the rings and each ring is mm-hmm. a year. <laughs> little rings. You see them under the microscope. They show mm-hmm. you every cycle. Well, another little tidbit. The whole reason that we talked about even the rivets thing is these days in aviation, if there is a crack, and if it's obvious too, in the same line of thinking, they use a drill stop 
to stop that crack. Yeah, we've as long as it's not a pressure yep. part of the airplane, they literally just drill a hole at the end of that crack, or what they assume is the end of the crack. It ends up usually not being. You notice that they don't drill a square. Right. <laughs> okay. That's okay. The reason. So, so they draw that perfect circle to stop the crack. It's the same thing with the rivets. You want a perfect circle rather than punched hole. More on that in our coming chalk episode that got lost and now we're re-recording. So yeah, fun thing to look forward to. Yeah. yeah. I guess maybe my point with the whole low cycle, high cycle is had the design been a little worse or conditions been a little worse, mm-hmm. this would have been more obvious from the get-go and in testing. Yeah. Had it been a little better, uh, we, we might not have found out about this actually more disasters could yeah. have occurred yeah so it's, i don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing it's you know i hate to say it is what it is it's, that seems to be a phrase going around right now mm-hmm. yeah if it's slightly worse <laughs> they would have caught it but slightly better i don't know or how, however you want to look at it yeah yep. it's yep. interesting where it was right on that line yep that was the comet crashes yeah the comet crashes. thank you to chris stallard chris stallard for recommending our patron thank you so much we've been trying really 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 hard to increase our social media presence. So Miranda is basically running our Twitter account now. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been basically running our Instagram lately. And I don't do anything. So <laughs> if you follow us on Twitter now, we're actually posting stuff. Miranda is posting Concord posts because she is Miranda. Just randomly every week. She loves Concord. It's a great, I don't know. It's a weird obsession. I don't know why I like it so much, but I do. I mean, it's a cool airplane. Yeah. <laughs> We found out that the Queen rode on one, by the way. So thank you, everyone, for your continued listening. Thanks. And we will catch you next time. Keep Keep your airspeed airspeed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. And our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.